Word at Work from Fertility Matters at Work is a conversation about fertility and how it affects people at work. You'll be hearing from our community about what they experienced whilst trying to build their families, as our aim is to help you better understand this issue by sharing these stories. We also share our insights as we're now two years into doing this work. Plus, we're talking to the trailblazing organisations who are making these cultural changes the norm, as well as bringing you thought leaders from the workplace wellbeing space. We're getting ahead of the game and spotting signs and being able to come up with ways to support managers and the teams and colleagues and leaders just as naturally part of the conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of The F Word at Work. Now, we are just ahead of this year's National Fertility Awareness Week, which runs from the 30th of October to the 6th of November. And I just wanted to get that note in your diary because... If you've been listening to this podcast for a little while or you're listening for the first time because the fertility conversation has come onto your radar as being an important conversation to have within the workplace, then this is a real opportunity for you to maybe put out some comms and maybe see what response there is to a further conversation around fertility support in the workplace. So I just wanted to put that out there. This podcast is all about sharing examples of our members who are doing amazing work in their commitment to becoming fertility friendly accredited. We also share stories from our community as well as thought leaders from the workplace wellbeing space. And that's what you're going to hear in this episode. I was really chuffed to get a date in the diary to speak with Emma Flaxman, who's my guest. She's so insightful and I'm in awe of the work that she's doing within her workplace and what she's kind of really carved out and pushed forward. It's an amazing example of someone who's been driven from personal experience as well and she's making great waves and I I know you'll, you'll really enjoy this conversation. So grab a cuppa, put your feet up or if you're on the move, plug those ears in and I hope you find it interesting. Before we hear from our guest, we just want to mention this season's sponsor, Apricity, which is next generation fertility with a really unique virtual model that uses AI innovation and technology to reimagine fertility care. Now, what Apricity do is offer family building benefit solutions to employers, health plans and individual patients. And it goes from diagnostic testing right through to full fertility management, including medical treatments such as IVF, egg donation and egg freezing. Apricity helps build families by providing access to the best doctors, technology and unlimited support. So to discover how Apricity can support your employees, just visit apricityfertility.com. There's such irony here. I'm trying to start recording a podcast about mental health and giving myself a nervous breakdown due to the tech issues but hopefully they won't plague us. I'm delighted to welcome Emma Flaxman who I first heard speak at the This Can Happen conference in March and I just thought listening to her she was an absolute powerhouse in the way she was talking about the work that she was doing within her industry. Emma wears numerous hats in her work as a wellbeing partner at PhD which is a large UK media agency. You'll hear Emma explain more about the work she does. She's a mum of two small people. She's got a blog called Insanely Normal and in it she describes how she's on a mission to get the UK talking about their mental health the way that we do our physical health. So I'm really looking forward to hopefully having a tech-free chat now with Emma. Thank you so much for being patient. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. There's nothing more ironic, is there, than getting stressed about something that you're doing at work, especially when we're talking about the topic of mental health. Oh, no, not at all. 
Now, on that. <laughs> I was really interested, though, when I was reading about you in, in your blog posts and stuff about your kind of route to being this mental health advocate, that it was a pretty recent journey. You do so much. And there was one thing that I'm going to talk about where you listed all that you have on your plate at the moment, which was such a lengthy list in terms of work life and home life. But can you just give me a whistle stop tour of your route to becoming a mental health advocate? Because it's as recent as 2019, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So I have been a marketing expert for the last 18 years. And as you said, recently became well-being. But that only happened because I was offered the opportunity to train as a mental health first aider in 2019. And the only reason I said yes to that, or like, you know, a major reason I said yes to that is because I actually had to see my sister in suffering from really poor mental health about 10 years ago, to the point where it almost hit crisis point. And I just thought I didn't know anything that I didn't know how to help her. I didn't recognize any of the signs. And if I could learn and help other people avoid going anywhere near that, I jumped to the opportunity. And yeah, and because it was just before COVID, I didn't probably appreciate how many mental health like calls that I would deal with straight after that. I think it was in the like 90s within the first six months, because I work in an industry where the average age is around 25. So we've got a load of young people living in random houses. They needed additional support. And I was able to provide that. And the good thing was with 90 odd calls, I was able to take the data from those calls and understand what we needed to do to help our people go through this crisis together. But also what were we doing in the business that was actually exacerbating poor mental health and what could we do to change it? So my journey kind of started there. And in terms of your sister's experience, did she get any support from the workplace? She wasn't working at the time. So I think because I work in a very stressful industry and actually part of my role was new business. So actually I dealt with probably people at their most heightened moments of stress, shall we say, pitching specifically around, you know, really tight deadlines, quite a lot of pressure to deliver. That's probably one of the key things that kind of pushed me to bring it into the workplace a little bit more. Those people and those situations can actually be avoided. Now, I've only been learning more about the workplace well-being space since we've been doing the work at Fertility Matters at Work, which has been since the pandemic. That's kind of when we put our heads down. But our route to it was that we didn't experience support for our issues from the fertility point of view. And I'm going to talk more about that with you in a moment. But I'm interested in, you talked about the data and we're talking about a point in time where we know mental health became much more prominent on the agenda. So was it the fact that you had the data to state your business case or was it just that everybody at that point started talking about mental health much more and so the conversation heightened? I think it was a mixture, to be honest. I think that if I'd have attempted to try changing roles into a well-being space before those calls, I probably wouldn't have had the easy route in that I had. I was able to turn a part of my job was about building culture. So when you've got a bunch of people who are miserable and unhappy and unhealthy, you can't really create a culture with that. So actually, it kind of fell into my role naturally. And I have always said, actually, I think that well-being should sit outside of HR. I think it fits really nicely in any role which is around building culture. So it kind of felt like it was a natural progression in that space, even though it was quite a lot of people see it as a completely different route. I actually don't. And was there buy-in at senior level with what you were trying to make happen? Absolutely. In fact, 
when I put my case forward to leave new business and actually push part of my job to be well-being, it was all around the fact that my job is to market the agency and I need the people inside to be saying the same story. So I literally had no argument to kind of put it up against. I'd already kind of proven with the stuff that I was doing on top of my day job while also homeschooling my son, which is a nightmare, and potty training my daughter and running pitches and still managing to maintain the culture of the agency with our team. All of the stuff that I did was so passion driven that actually I was doing it outside of my hours because I genuinely cared about it. And I think then it forcing it into my remit, it didn't feel like a struggle. It, It felt like a natural progression of what I was doing. And what kind of impact were you seeing? Because a lot of this conversation is also about impact and being able to measure that impact when you are trying to state the business case for why it should be ongoing and that type of thing. What feedback were you getting from the people that were benefiting from, you know, the change you were trying to put in place? Do you know what? Some of them were in a really, really bad place. Some of them were struggling with family members being abroad that they couldn't see. One of them in particular had a very poorly sister who was living in Asia. She had two young children who couldn't leave the house. They were very high risk in the COVID category. So she couldn't go anywhere. And she was also dealing with a job on top of it. And my role was to just listen to her and give her the resources that she needed in order to feel better. Her feedback specifically, just one person, it can only take one person sometimes. You're trying to reach 350. You can't do that all the time. If you get one positive feedback that you've helped one person, then it's all worth it. So, yeah, I mean, we saw a significant shift in engagement surveys and things like that. So, yeah, I think it was working. It was making a difference. Obviously, there are still loads to do, but we started this journey and now I absolutely refuse to stop it. In in terms of signposting, because ultimately it's just you or the rest of your kind of mental health advisor team that are the go-to places we often talk about like peer support networks and stuff have you seen that that started to evolve now that you've shown that this is a safe culture and you want people to feel they can reach out and have that support do you know what when we first started training mental health first aiders so I was one of the first trained in our agency and I actually trained with someone who sat in the HR team now she dealt with a conflict of interest so if she was talking to someone about their performance it was very difficult for her to then flip and be very empathetic and sympathetic around how they were feeling. So I handled all of the calls and then I worked with her to come up with ways to support the teams. Over the last couple of years, we've moved massively out of that space because what mental health first aiders are essentially is reactive. They're picking up people once they've fallen over. So what we've tried to do is utilize them in a completely different way so that they're much more proactive. We brought in self-space therapy for everybody and then actually people stopped calling our mental health first aiders Those mental health first aiders now have the kind of feedback that they've given is we are using it in our everyday roles. They are advising the people around them. So it's working, but in a completely different way. So we're not relying on people picking up phones anymore and making those calls. We're getting ahead of the game and spotting signs and being able to come up with ways to support managers and the teams and colleagues and leaders just as naturally part of the conversation. So it's that proactive nature of it now, which is really empowering for people as well, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it's a life skill, just as physical first aid is. Mental health first aid is a life skill. You touched on managers there, and I'm really keen to just get your thoughts on the load that managers are expected when we talk about well-being in the workplace, because the way that we work is to try and educate managers about fertility issues in particular when we're talking about fertility matters at work. 
And one example of a conversation we've had recently with somebody saying that they're dealing with fertility struggles personally. They'd previously been working somewhere where they were in a supportive organization. So they'd had that impetus to take it to their new organization. They hadn't revealed that this was a personal thing that they were wanting. That was the reason why they wanted to talk about it. But they said to the manager, they felt this was an important conversation for the organization to be having. And the line manager basically turned around and said, this doesn't affect very many people. So it's not something that we're going to be doing more about. They've been left feeling very deflated. The numbers are one in six people are affected. Have you had direct kickbacks from people saying, if the manager doesn't necessarily have personal experience of the issue, of them saying it's not relevant? Or do you feel that there's been enough of a cultural shift in your particular organisation? Because I know you've got an overview of the workplace wellbeing space as well. What kind of things are you hearing? I mean, we are really lucky. We have different teams that look after different underrepresented groups, shall we say. So we've actually got a working parents and carers team And the mental health team work really intersectionally with every single one of those teams, because obviously everyone has mental health. You may not be a parent, you may not be multicultural, you may not be from the LGBTQ plus team, but you all have mental health. So we've started working, we've literally just done a series actually, where we've worked with every single one of those teams to talk about mental health awareness, weeks, theme, anxiety. And we've talked about how anxiety impacts all of those groups. The last one we did actually, episode four was working parents and carers. And we talked about the fact that It starts from the fertility moment. It's not just when someone's pregnant walking around the office or when they've come back from maternity leave, because quite a lot of that stuff does happen in private. What we want to do is to create an environment where people feel at least comfortable talking to their line manager so that there's an awareness around what someone could be going through. Because the instinct before was if somebody's performance suffered, they went on performance review But actually, we're human beings with really, really complicated lives. And all it takes is a little bit of trauma to completely knock you off your game. And then you're a bit shit at your job at the moment. So it's about those managers being able to have those conversations and rely on our first aiders and our minds teams to open up those conversations and start to understand it. It's all around education, as you said, just understanding what somebody is going through. And giving them that support, even if it's just a little bit of time off or a little bit of slack on their workload while they deal with this, it doesn't take a lot. It doesn't need the business to do loads around it. It just needs a little bit of support and sympathy, I think, sometimes. And what if the managers, though, just don't see the relevance of it? They don't think it's an issue. I think if you're a manager and you don't think that a personal issue impacting any of your teammates is a problem, then you probably need to do some manager training. Because management training isn't just about learning how to do to write smart objectives and give someone a performance review. Managers, decent managers who want to become leaders, understand the strengths and the weaknesses of their team. They understand the issues that could impact their team and they understand the personal circumstances that can affect performance. And they work with those people in order to understand it and navigate it. They are the best managers. If you are not seeing these particular personal issues is something that can impact your teams, then you are probably doing something wrong. Do you think there's an element of well-being fatigue in terms of how we're talking about mental health and all the many ways it can present itself in the workplace? I do. I do. Yeah. I mean, it's the same with diversity and inclusion. You know, people are sick and tired of hearing about it. But the fact is, we're not where we need to be. So we're not going to stop talking about it until we are. 
I think one of the good things that we've done now is, well, since COVID, a lot more people have been talking about mental health and mental illness, which is an incredible thing because we're starting to remove that stigma. A large proportion of mental health problems are caused by not talking about them. So which is why I set up the blog in the first place, because I wanted people to feel they had an open space where they could talk about their problems and not be judged and not be stigmatized because unfortunately it still happens in a GP office. So if it happens in a GP office, what the bloody hell hope have the rest of us got? So if we can minimise the issues around it in the workplace, then we've got somewhere. But I think the problem is now is not necessarily about talking about it. I think we are miles ahead of that. It's how do we fix it? Because there is a new pandemic on the horizon mental health issues are impacting everybody. I saw somebody comment on a post a couple of weeks ago, the fact that we're talking about it so much, it's causing mental health problems. Now, I disagree with that. I don't think that's necessarily the problem. I think the problem is we don't have the resources available quick enough to support those who need it sooner. And, you know, we're in an environment now where you've got walls kicking off, you've got cost of living crisis up and you've got under-resourced teams unfortunately everywhere and let alone you add on things like life trauma you know grief bereavement baby loss all of that kind of stuff on top of it we are struggling and the NHS is struggling to deal with it we don't have all the charities they don't have the supplies that they need to give it you know to give the people the support they need so if businesses can step up and look after their people then it takes a huge load off everybody else trying to fight this issue So I think that especially if you're a business that causes mental health problems. Yeah. Now, that sounds quite strict. But if you're a business that knows that you work in a highly stressful environment and your people are expected to work above and beyond their hours, you are responsible for supporting them. I'm sorry, but that's just how I see it. And if you work somewhere where they don't tend to care about your mental health and you are struggling, work somewhere else. And what about the organisations that are like, well, we give people gym memberships, you know, that they think that there's certain types of benefits in place. And we're talking about fixing it. If people are listening and there's that overwhelm of, oh, where do I start? What would your thoughts be on the right type of support? Because from our point of view at Fertility Matters, you know, like you said, talking about certain issues is so important people being validated by hearing their similar stories to them or them being represented by people that are part of different conversations is so key what would your take be on that so it's funny when you said free gym memberships no one can see this but I did roll my eyes (laughs) the problem that we've got is not actually a workplace problem it's an education problem yeah there is so much that makes up someone's wellness So whether it's physical health, whether it's nutrition, whether it's a decent night's sleep, whether it's the people you hang around with, you know, some people will lift you up, some people bring you down, your job, how you manage that job. And if your health is not in a good place, your resilience levels are going to be really low. So if you come into work feeling really good, having a decent night's sleep, eating really well, doing some exercise, and a client is a bit shitty to you, you might let it bounce off your shoulder and you can crack on with your day. If that's not the case and you are unhealthy, and then that is coming on top of it, your reaction to that is going to be completely different. So the core thing to understand is there is nothing more individual than the human brain. We are all brought up differently. We are all raised differently. Things impact us differently. Therefore, there is no wellness plan that fits everybody. So what you've got to do is ensure that you are covering all areas. Education is key. I mean, I always like to call it your brain is your boss. So if you look after your brain, it's the only organ in your entire body that no one can keep alive. If your brain is functioning, you have the ability to help every other part of your body work, right? So if you look after it, 
then everything else will benefit. Your skin will look better. Your eyes will look better. Everything will work better if you look after your brain. But we are not taught this is school. We are taught about PE. We are taught in the media how we should look. What we're not taught is actually being proud of looking after yourself is the most important aspect. And actually, when people start to move into that space, you know, you've got like personal trainers who are kind of steps ahead in terms of you will feel better if you work out. What they don't understand is actually the dopamine levels and the serotonin and all of the other stuff that it kind of adds to helps you perform better in everything. It makes you be a better parent. It can make you be better at your job. It can make you a better friend, a better family member. It all matters. So actually a plan that is spread across physical, nutrition, mental, gym memberships are all very good and well, but they can't be the only thing. Free smoothie Wednesdays are very lovely, but they need to be continuous. Mental health is always on. So it's about talking about different subjects, different illnesses, understanding how they impact people, and knowing how your brain functions. None of us are taught neuroscience at school. I've just taken a postgrad in neuroscience and my God, I didn't know half and a quarter of the stuff I've just learned in the last six months. Those things have enabled me to talk to people differently because I think people instantly think of the psychological side of mental illness. They think about the kind of soft side, you know, about we should meditate and we should be doing yoga and we should have mindfulness. We should, we absolutely should if we can fit it in, but some of that doesn't work for some people. Sometimes it's just about exercising and eating well and enjoying other people's company that can literally make your day better or worse. So I think it's just an all rounded plan that kind of works for everybody. Now, we talk about the issues around disclosure and especially when we're talking about fertility related issues. People are very fearful. They don't necessarily want to play their hand, especially for women. They don't want to play their hand and say they're planning on trying to start a family with all that might come, the presumptions that that is going to result in them then going on maternity. We try to keep the conversations very much in the now of what that person's going through. But like you mentioned earlier, when you're talking about your parent and carers group, it's Mm. thinking that fertility piece is there in it, but it's probably been going on for quite a long period of time before anybody even says it's an issue. If they do, what about the people that just can't bring themselves to say what the issue is? How do we help them? Because one of the, I think, challenges that we face is that we know people don't want to talk about their fertility issues. There's a whole load of shame around it. The LGBT community in particular, if they're not out at work, how they're then going to talk about the fact that they want to be a parent and what that then looks like. And we know that we talk much more about vulnerability and trying to encourage people to embrace it and feel that they can and trying to create these psychologically safe spaces. But by the nature of some of these mental health issues that we're talking about, there is still such a reluctance, isn't there, to even say what the problem is. What do we do about that, would you say? Absolutely. I mean, you think about fertility specifically, it's so personal. You know, you're you're essentially talking about starting a family, which could completely change your life. It's going to change your career slightly differently. It might pause it for a minute and then it might kick off again, or it may make you realise that actually that career is not for me. So yeah, some employers do get worried when they know that, you know, a top performing female is about to become a parent. It's a panic because they don't have to replace that person. However, I think when it comes to well-being, We have a duty of care to the people that work with us. We have to create an environment where they feel psychologically safe, that they can talk about these things that they're going through, because if they don't, the assumption is so much worse. The assumption is that they're checking out or they're leaving the business or do you know what I mean? It's so crucial 
that people feel comfortable, even if it's just one person. I mean, in our organization, we try to encourage people to talk to our first aiders because they are completely confidential conversations. During the conversations that I have, I always go back and say, would you like me to have a conversation on your behalf with your line manager so that they don't have to go through the whole thing again and that they know the person who's responsible for their performance is now aware why their performance may be not as good as it normally is. So it's about creating a space where if it's not your line manager or your core team, creating an opportunity for people to have open conversations in complete confidence. You know, maybe it's HR, maybe you can speak to HR, maybe there's somewhere where you feel comfortable. If there isn't somewhere you feel comfortable having those conversations, it might be better to talk to people outside of work. There are obviously a lot of charities in this space that can support people going through that situation. Just being able to openly talk about it somewhere may enable you to be more comfortable in the working place. And if you have to make up excuses, which we all did before, you know, I can't remember how many times people said, oh, I've got a cold when they're totally not. They're just really depressed and they just can't make it out of bed that day. We are moving away from that. Hopefully we can move away from the other things that we've kept private for such a long period of time. I think COVID enabled us to understand that we are human and we've got lots of facets to our lives. And actually those things can sometimes make us better at our jobs and sometimes they can make us underperform. And actually it doesn't need to be a continuous loop. It can be fixable. Um, what about for smaller organisations that might feel under-resourced, they might feel that they've just not got the capacity to really address mental health issues how best could they go about making the conversations come to life without feeling that it's going to stretch them even further? Role modelling. If your leaders are being vulnerable and open and honest, it will trickle down the business. So actually, if you can't afford to put someone in the position of mental health, or maybe you can't even afford to train one individual in your business, which I think that is imperative, to be honest. Mm. If you've got one person in your business who has mental health first aid, they can then advise the rest of the business. You don't need to train everyone in it because actually one thing that we've started doing, I know that we are a large organization and actually we do this because we're a large organization, but we have a monthly reminder on what we learned during our mental health first aid because if you don't have any calls or conversations, that stuff slips out your head. So we do constant reminders of, oh, this is the algae method and this is what we do when we're you know deep listening. And actually we remind our first aiders every month on a topic that's relevant to maybe something that we've got a spotlight on or, you know, we did just do mind out training. So all of our mental health first aiders just started to understand how we can support the LGBTQ plus community. We did a reminder for our first aiders who couldn't make that call on what we learned on that training. So it's a constant knowledge sharing thing. If you can't have that, though, role modeling is key. Make sure your leaders are doing the right things and behaving in a way that you want the rest of the business to behave, because if they're not, everyone's probably going to copy the wrong things. The minute you start role modelling from the top, it will filter down and everyone will start to feel much more comfortable in that space. So useful. Thank you. And I just want to finally just refer back to your blog, your Insanely Normal blog, and you'd written a piece about burnout and you'd listed the numerous things that you were trying to do in your work life and you've got a young family. And the conclusion was that you really needed to put some boundaries in place and actually listen to all that you've learned. How good are you then at executing what you now know and and how are you feeling in where you're at with that huge list of things that you were trying to accomplish and what you're trying to do in day to day 
the irony of you talking at the beginning about doing a mental health podcast that <laughs> ended up causing you a nil mental breakdown. <laughs> I decided to do a postgrad in neuroscience and psychology in September. I had worked in my business for a decade. And when you work in the business for a decade, you get a month sabbatical. So most people, you know, bugger off to Australia or they get a villa somewhere and they spend the whole month there. Not me. I decided to start this postgrad and it was 21 hours a week. And this was perfectly fine when I was not working in that first month. It was not that easy once I went back to work. And as I said, I've got two young children. I've got a five-year-old daughter and a seven-year-old son. I had to say to them quite regularly, mummy's got to study. I'm really sorry. I'll come and see you in an hour. There were times where I shouted at them because I was in the middle of a timed exam and they're bursting into my room talking about Minecraft or something. And I'm going, mummy's on a course, get out. And it was awful. Like my anger levels were extremely high. And I actually started that course with the plan to do a master's. I completed the postgrad and I decided for my own mental well-being that it was good to just take that and go with that. And I'm really proud of myself that I still managed to walk away from King's College with a postgrad in neuroscience. I definitely think I'd be doing that in my 40s. But I knew when the time was up to stop doing that. I mean, I was stood there telling people how to avoid burnout and I was burning myself out. In fact, the worst part of it was I had no life around it. So I became extremely depressed. And when you're in a position where you've got to support other people's well-being, I was wearing this very heavy mask and it was exhausting. I was so tired, emotionally drained. I was still then having to try and watch YouTube videos on what they meant by oligodendrites. I wasn't 100% sure of what I was doing. I just knew something had to give. And I decided to walk away with the postgrad. And I'm really, really pleased that I did that. And my goodness, did my health shoot straight back up. I started exercising again because I didn't have any time to exercise. I started eating better. And most importantly, I spent more time with my children and my friends and family. And it's so underrated how much that can impact how you feel. And yeah, I realized that spending all my time on a computer, whether it was working or the study, it was just not good for me. That permission, giving ourselves permission to end this brilliant chat, because I could talk to you and ask you so many more questions, I think is so key with all of this, isn't it? Whatever level you're at, because ultimately we hope that if you're listening to this podcast, you are in a position where you're either trying to make a change as an employee within an organisation, or maybe you are a people leader, or you're in that wellbeing space and you're trying to implement some change around the fertility conversation and other mental health conversations. But it's that permission for you within everything that you're doing to ensure that you can perform in the best way possible. Otherwise, what's the point? As you've just said, you weren't doing the things that really mattered that helped you ultimately be the you you want to be. So we need to have that. And I think that permission piece has become more prominent. It's that whole fit your own mask before you fit everyone else's. If you are struggling with something and you are not healthy and you're not well and you're not performing in the way that you want or you're just not happy How are you going to do that for other people in your business? How are you going to manage them? How are you going to encourage them? How are you going to motivate them? It's so hard. So actually, it's not about giving yourself permission. It's about doing what's right. Look after yourself first, because if you are in the best headspace, your ability to lead others and influence others just grows tenfold, I think. Emma, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And congrats. Did you get another award at the last conference or did you present an award when you had no, that I presented, uh, Yeah, I presented one. I was very pleased to be asked. But yeah, I'm now an ambassador for This Can Happen. So That's I'll it. probably do that quite a lot. 
congrats on the new degree. And it's been lovely chatting and I'm going to share the blog details and everything because I think it's a really insightful blog, as is what you're sharing on socials. So thank you for your time. No, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, all our contact details are coming up next, but I just wanted to ensure that you have signed up to our newsletter. There'll be a link in the show notes because we've got some really interesting stuff coming up for National Fertility Awareness Week, including the opportunity for you to get your hands on our fertility policy guidance, which if you are listening to this thinking it is something you want to get started with and you don't know where to start, We're going to be sharing that with you and it's going to be a really useful piece of information to help you start to think and shape something that you can put in place to support others going through this. Please take a moment just to hit the follow or subscribe button in the podcast app you're listening to this episode on and thank you as always for listening.